Another episode of GEQ Speaks, your go-to platform for insightful conversations, captivating stories, and thought-provoking discussions. GEQ is a series of experiences, and we're just making sense of that as we go along. That is what we're doing here, one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and let's dive into our episode. My name is Aishan Musah. I'm a senior at Georgetown University, uh, majoring in international politics and the president of the Muslim Students Association for this year. Um, the Muslim Students Association was initiated in 2020 by uh, a former student here, Iman Ismail. Um, and uh, initially she said this is an aim to provide a safe space for spiritual reflection and questioning. I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Hidayah Muhammad Noor and Sabiha Batul Koch, who are members of the MSA. Um, hi, my name is Sabiha. I'm a sophomore year, majoring in international politics. Assalamu my name is Hidayah. I'm also a sophomore and I'm majoring in international politics. Today we are honored to have Imam Yahya Hindi as a guest today's episode. Imam Hindi is the United States' first full-time Muslim chaplain based at a university. He currently oversees Georgetown University's Masjid in D.C., the first full-scale mosque on a college campus in the U.S. Assalamu alaikum and thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us, Imam. Uh, before starting, I want to it's say... A, it is an honor <laughs> to be with young future leaders, inshallah. It is an honor to have you. Thank you. Um, so before starting, I want to say that unfortunately, as all of us know, during this time, our Palestinian brothers and sisters are being targeted violently by the Israeli occupation and apartheid. Uh, we urge all of you who are listening to keep them in your prayers, keep reposting the news, continue boycotting and donate because it will reach them eventually. And uh, the, the MSA have posted a newsletter with academic sources on Palestine to guide anyone who doesn't fully understand this violent apartheid. Um, we also have compiled references that give you important information on the history of Palestine, dating back to 1948. Um, both will be added as a link to this episode. I recommend checking out both if you want to educate yourself on the matter. Although the suffering is immeasurable, we shouldn't lose our hope. As Allah the Almighty tells us in the Holy Quran, unquestionably the victory of Allah is near. This ayah itself uh, should be a source of reassurance and comfort for all Muslims as Allah bears witness to everything. And I'll leave the floor to you now, Imam Hamdi. Uh, feel free to briefly comment on the ongoing situation in Palestine. Well, thank you. Thank you for talking about it. Thank you for remembering it. Thank you for thinking of it. Thank you for mentioning it. Before I talk about what is happening, the surah in the Quran that addresses the issue of Palestine is uh, Surah Al-Isra, which is, by the way, in the middle of the Quran. So if you go into the Quran, and go to the middle page and open the Qur'an 50% to the right and 50% to the left, it will be Surah Al-Isra. 
In other words, it is in the heart of the Quran. I believe that is a message from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the entire ummah for thousands of years. That Al-Quds is at the heart of Islam and must be in the heart of the ummah. The ummah will cease to be an ummah if Al-Quds is not in the center. Historically, empires that ruled the region were successful when their direction was Al-Quds. Muslims or non-Muslims. And they ceased to exist when they lost focus on Jerusalem. That's the case with the Persian Empire, with the British Empire, with the Roman Empire, and with the Muslim Empire. If the Ummah cares about being united again, coming back to doing what it is to do, what we are to do as an Ummah for ourselves and for the world, Al-Quds and Jerusalem has to come back to be in the center, to be the focus of the Ummah. Maybe what is happening is a call for all of us around the world to discover the direction of the Ummah and what unites the Ummah. Maybe we have lost our heart. Maybe it is time to bring life to the heart or maybe the heart will bring life to us. So this is for me the beginning of the answer to the question you asked. Those who hear this broadcast, you the students, faculty, staff, any human being, keep your eyes on the prize. Prize is Jerusalem. My friends, yes, it is mentioned in the Quran, it's in the heart of the Quran. It is what will keep us going. But it is a human right issue. It is an issue of justice. We cease to be Muslims if we do not tell the truth about Al-Quds. We cease to be spiritual if we do not talk about and promote the cause of justice in Al-Quds. We cease to understand the message of the Quran if we don't talk about this just case or issue or project of the Ummah. Maybe this is what can unite us. It's not about land and soil and rocks. Though we love the rock, I am from a Palestinian background. I was born and I grew up in Palestine. And no matter where I have traveled, and I have been to more than 70-some countries, my heart goes back naturally to Palestine. Been to places, sat in fancy castles and normal ones, and something about Al-Quds that is beyond the imaginations of humans or the description of poetry. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to one day visit Al-Quds, where our eyes will feel the power of and the beauty of being in the presence of that amazing town. <coughs> now what is happening is genocide. What is happening is ethnic cleansing. What is happening is the manifestation of hate against a people called the Palestinians. What is happening is nothing but a part of the colonial project that has persisted 
started hundreds of years ago and is still in existence. What is happening has nothing to do with what happened on October 7th, even when every major power talks about that. This is a conflict, not even a conflict. This is a genocide. Sorry for the word conflict. It's not a conflict. It's not two equals fighting on the land. It's a victim and a victimizer, an oppressed and oppressor that started, I dare to say, 150 years ago when some people thought in Europe that they needed a state for themselves. It happened in 1917, in 1924, in 1936, in 1947, in 1948, in 1953, in 1967, and many dates. This is a genocide that has been ongoing. This is a genocide that was orchestrated by political powers 100-some years ago. Unfortunately, people slipped on it, thinking it will be easily solved, and people let that genocide go. And therefore, I, I dare to say now, if not now, when? And if not you and I, who will? And if not for this cause, what cause? Can we be united? When the British Empire, with the French Empire, when the entire Europe and the United States of America, 50 years after, 40 years after that, allied, coordinated their efforts, their plans to give the land of Palestine where Palestinians lived for thousands of years to people from all over the world. It's quite strange that uh, they say that they came, they say a people with no land for a land with no people. I say, even according to the Bible, and I am a scholar of biblical studies and comparative religions. Before Abraham came to the land, before Moses came to the land, before the story of Jacob and the story of Joseph, there were people living in that land called the Canaanites and the Philistines. There were people living in that land. Actually, when God told Abraham to leave Iraq and go to Palestine, he told him that in Palestine there will be people. These are the Palestinians. And Palestinians have been living in that land, whether they are Jews, and there are Palestinian Jews, especially in the city of Nablus. I know them. I know I have friends who are Palestinian Jews, who have Palestinian passports and Palestinian IDs. They speak Palestinian accent, Arabic, and the, you would not distinguish between a Palestinian Jew and a Muslim Jew or a Christian Jew in the way they talk and the way they dress, actually. They, they all eat kinafa. <laughs> they all make ma'lubi and, and wara'inab. Uh, unfortunately, the international community planned... And there was no people to resist. So this genocide has been ongoing. Between 1947 and 1948, these are facts that you need to know. 435 Palestinian towns were wiped out. As someone who traveled between Galilee and all the way to Gaza, that whole coast area, the shores of Palestine, at one point had 435 towns completely wiped out. They don't even exist on the map. If you go to Palestine now, I call it erasing the memory of a nation. Much of what existed in the buildings and the culture and the food in, in is completely being wiped out and has been systematically since 1947, 1948. So for anyone to say this is what is happening in Gaza is because of what someone did on October 7th, it's absolutely, it is the biggest lie. So the first lie 
people with no land for land with no people is a lie. The second line, it started October 7th. It did not. It started many years before that and has been ongoing and as we speak. So much can be spoken and said, but I'll stop here. Our hearts with our brothers and sisters in Palestine, we stand by them, for them, advocate their just cause. We will not shy away. We will definitely not shy away. And I feel like October 7th has definitely been a wake-up call for many of us, and most importantly to all the Muslims and all the um, Arabs. Um, and I feel like the Israeli government also sees that because they're blocking Instagram accounts, they're blocking news channels, they're targeting journalists. A family of the of a journalist just just lost a couple of his uh, a journalist just lost a couple of his members just yesterday. Um, so I think they definitely know that they. They are now under the spotlight, and I feel like that's important. And um, um, it's it's good to hear it also from your perspective because you have your you have come from different backgrounds. You were born in Palestine, and then you you live in the United States. Um, If I may interrupt, you know, be, be organic discussion and honest, open. Not only the journalist who was, whose family was killed yesterday, Israelis target journalists and have killed so many of them. Shireen Abu Akla is one. Yesterday they targeted another female journalist. Almost every day it happens. They target teachers, academics, doctors, and journalists. They don't want these people to exist. But guess what? We have the resiliency and the commitment to keep going. Uh, Imam Hindi, we will now be transitioning into asking questions related to your personal experience in the United States. So how has your journey from being born in Palestine, growing up in the Middle East, and later moving to the United States shaped your faith? Particularly, how would you compare between your lived experience as a Muslim in the Middle East and in the U.S.? What a question. Mm. That requires ma'lubi and mansaf <laughs> and jaddara and everything. Five hours answer. Listen, growing up, being the fact that I was born in Palestine, from early days in my childhood, as far as I could remember, we were trained, we were raised by our parents, and I am one of 11 kids, a huge family. We have 61 nephews and nieces, huge families. I grew up in, like, the house is full of people running around. My father, who was a school teacher, my mother, who was taking care of all of those <laughs> and her in-laws, um, taught us, number one, you need to believe in yourself. Number one, you need to believe in God. Number two, you need to believe in yourself. Number three, you need to be educated. Number four, it's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from them. Uh, never worry about what happened yesterday. Never be anxious about what will happen tomorrow. Enjoy the moment. This is how I was raised. I, I started reading the books of, of fiqh and jurisprudence and aqidah and theology and creed. Believe it or not, uh, when I was nine, I finished the reading of uh, the fiqh of the Hanafi fiqh books at age 14. I finished the reading of the Hanbali school of thought fiqh. At the age 16, I did my first research uh, on women in Islam when I was 15. I still have that research, 97 pages. So I grew up 
committed to faith, reading, studying. When my colleagues in the school used to take their allowances to buy food and falafel and shawarma and everything, I would take my allowance to make sure I have enough money to buy the newspaper or books. So by the time I finished my high school, I had almost 70 books in my book collection. Now I have almost 18,000 books. So I took that tradition with me, reading and reading and reading. When I finished my high school, I, I, uh, my father wanted me to study medicine because I was ilmi. I studied in scientific field and I got uh, a scholarship to study medicine and I turned that down to study Sharia, Islamic studies. And my father, oh my God, what are you doing? That's not good. You need to make money and you need to have to be a doctor, I told him, I'll be a doctor in a different way. Not necessarily by being a physician. It took me three, three months to convince him. I would not want to do something without his approval. It meant a lot that he says yes. So I had to <laughs> use his own friends to convince him. It took time. Finally, when he said, Allah, may Allah be pleased with you, go. I felt good I could leave Palestine. But subhanAllah, I, never, I have not thought about this for 40 some or 50 years. I, I did uh, a little speech in the school saying to, saying, to my, saying to our beloved Palestine, you made me become what I have become. I remember my words in Arabic. I'm translating. I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. Palestine, I promise you, everywhere I go, I'm going to be honest to your cause. I'll never forget those words when I was 18. Left Philistine, went, studied Islamic studies and in Amman, Jordan, and that's where I learned how to cook myself. Then I went to the States to complete my education in comparative religions. I thought in order to be able to live in a country that's not my own 35 years ago, I would need to understand the culture, the religion, the faith the philosophy of the people I'm living with. That's why I decided to study Christianity and Judaism. But my heart was always with Al-Quds. My heart was with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. My heart was with how I can use my education to push for an agenda of compassion, of love, of goodness, of unity. And I kept all of this with me in the United States of America. I became the first Muslim chaplain in the history of the United States of America. And it was not easy because I had just come to America and needed a lot to learn about the country of which I became a part. And I had to learn how to navigate my political views, my religious values in a country that is completely different from where I grew up. How can I advocate my cause in a manner that others understand? So I had to learn not to rely on emotional ways by which I deliver my my, my, my ideas, but rather it was my mind. Something I did not learn growing up. In the Palestinian culture, we are so emotional. And sometimes on the expense of our minds and, and the intellectual side of who we are. Sometimes we are too much focused on our hearts, on the expense of how we should think and reflect. Which is really strange for Muslims to do that because the first ayah that was ever revealed in the Quran says Iqra. Iqra does not mean to read, by the way. It means to read, to reflect, to think, to analyze, to survey, to, ref to take time to discern. Iqra means to take to your time to 
project yourself in the best of ways. So I took that Quran with me and started in America navigating my way around where I could become wise. I would become more informed. So I speak about my faith in an informed way. So I speak about my issues in an informed way. But again, those emotions stayed with me. So I am a crier. I cry in no time. Some people don't like that. For me, it's okay to cry. It's a natural thing. In the Arab culture, men are told, do not cry. Only women cry. No, we all cry. We need to know how to express ourselves and be authentic in the way we do that. To feel empathy as well. Sorry? To feel empathy. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, emotions are a part of who we are as human beings. So this is sort of what I took with me, Islam, my commitment to my cause, my commitment to the truth, my commitment to justice, my commitment to compassion, my commitment to, the, to, to our human family. Because, by the way, Islam is not only about taking care of Muslims. Islam wants me to take care of every human being. Islam wants me to stand up for justice for all people. Islam wants me to demand what is good and forbid what is wrong for all people. And I kept doing that. And this is how I lived my life as a chaplain, as an imam, as an academic, as a teacher, and later as a political activist. Living in Washington, D.C. is, is rather interesting. I mean, you live in, <laughs> in, in the heart of international politics, where politics is made in so many ways. So I became active publicly in, 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 in the political world. I, became a part of the public discourse on religion, on faith, on policies, on American policy and internally and externally, foreign policy, local policy, domestic politics. Again, I hope that answers some of the question. I think many of us are curious, what do you think is the most significant challenge that you faced being an imam in the United States and how you overcame it? But also wanting to understand more what is your exact role as an imam or a Muslim chaplain in uh, the D.C. campus for Georgetown? I would say patience. When you are passionate about a cause, whatever that cause is, that passion, if not driven and shaped by our intellect, can take you to places you do not want to be. You may lose wisdom. You may lose friends. You may lose opportunities. And with mistakes, and because of my mistakes, because I found the right people around me, the right mentors, the right guides, the right teachers, the right friends, I learned sometimes the wrong way, sometimes the right way, sometimes my own mistakes, sometimes from others, of how to be patient, how to take my time, how when I make decisions, I don't rush into them. And I think, I think that made me become a better spouse, a better father, a better friend, a better professional person, and, and a public speaker. So I said that, that's what I learned, being patient and taking your time to grow. Now, what I do as a chaplain, again, when Georgetown hired me, there were no other chaplains I could look up to. I could learn from no one because there's no one who did that kind of work. What I did, I traveled across the country to learn from what chaplains of other religions do. I brought all of that back home and tried to see what I can do similar that is okay with my faith and my values. And with the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his guidance, I was able to have 
a program grow from 100 Muslims at Georgetown when I was hired to now almost 600 Muslims at Georgetown main camps. MashaAllah. And if you add Georgetown Qatar, a part of it that I believe was a part of that extension of success because one of the reasons why we have Georgetown here is because Islam became important on the main campus in Washington, D.C. So it's all the same kind of story for which I say, Alhamdulillah, I only thank Allah, not me. I thank no one but Allah. Then I thank after that those who guided me, who supported me to do this. What do I do as a chaplain? I, I do spiritual counseling. I do religious counseling. I do career counseling. We do Ramadan activities. But it's mainly really the counseling and being present in the lives of our students spiritually. SubhanAllah, you seem like you engage with the students really well. Um, so looking at the past, we often think of the things we have done, our achievements, our challenges, but I think we often forget the people we were while we were doing these things. So uh, thinking of your past self, what is something you would want to tell your student self when you were in university? Um, if you can go back, what is one sentence you'd say to past Imam Hindi? I would say you can never be true to others unless you can be true to yourself. I think this gives us a perfect opportunity to transition into the next segment of our episode, where we will be seeking your advice on our religious opportunities, both to ourselves and to our community. And inshallah, we're hoping that our fellow students can gain some valuable insight from this particular section. So given the busyness of our university life, we may often find ourselves not engaging in dua, in dhikr, or committing to our salawat as diligently as would like. So what advice would you offer students regarding striking a balance between university commitments and worship? MashaAllah, thank you for a wonderful question. On the main campus, every Thursday from 8 to 9, we have a program called Dhikr uh, Halqa, where students from across campus, Muslims and non-Muslims sometimes come, to make dhikr with us. And it becomes an opportunity to teach non-Muslims about Islam and the beauty of dhikr in Islam. And we tell our students, you need to find time to take care of yourself. You need to find time away from books and food and your iPhone and Facebook and Instagram and all of that stuff to care for your soul. Uh, according to Islamic biomedical ethics, according to the way Islam understands the human person, Islam says or teaches that every human being is made of four equal components. The mind, the heart, the flesh, and the soul. In order to have a peaceful life, in order to live serenity and practice serenity and see serenity, in order to be in peace, live in peace, drowning in peace, you need to care for all of those four equal components on equal footing. What does that mean? I care for my mind in the way I care for my heart, as much as I care for my soul, as much as I care for my body. So you can call that self-care. How do I balance between the four needs of what makes me? There is time to read and be informed. There is time to sit down, do your homework, 
read more, empower yourself with information. Then you have to have equal time to take care of your heart. Finding time to sit and nurture that heart. If you don't do that, it will develop things that you would not want to have, like anger, like jealousy, like envy. And according to mental health specialists, those things undermine your physical health. Many people do not know that uh, anger, jealousy, and envy have bad impact on our liver, on our immune system. Many people do not know that smiling and laughing have physical, chemical impact on our muscles and on our immune system. Actually, according to doctors and scientists, people who smile and laugh have better memory than those who don't. Yes. This is why the Prophet said, Sallallahu Alaihi wa Wasallam, Tabassumuka fi wajhi akhika sadaqa. A smile in the face of your beloved brother or sister is an act of charity. This is why we are told in our Islam and our faith, Take care of yourself. Relax it every other hour. Because relaxing it protects your health. So all of those things, keeping them in mind, will allow you to make dua in the right way, will teach you the importance of dhikr and the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The last thing I would say is this. The Arabic word for salah, before prayer is salah. And salah does not mean a prayer when you translate that to English in the way the word prayer is understood in Latin. The Arabic word is salah from the verb wasala, which means to reach out to and connect with. So when you pray five times a day, you need to reach out to yourself, connect with yourself in order to connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's two folds, one with you and with, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I ask of my brothers and my sisters, whoever hears this broadcast is 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 Learn to go deep into yourself. What are your fears for the day? What are your worries for the day? What are your needs for the day? What is the thing that's making you angry, upset, happy? Uh, what do you want for that day? That internal or reflection on oneself will allow you to stand in a prayer with a different energy. But also needing to reach out to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and connect with him as al-wadud meaning the beloved. Allah loves you. Allah is waiting on you to bring you into his castle, to bring you into his garden, to bring you into his presence, into his reality. If you know that your mother or father whom you love or a friend is waiting on you, what would you do? You would run to be with them. Or if there's someone you really want to know, whether a famous person or someone you have not seen for years, and you know they're waiting on you to go, you would want to be with them. Allah is 24 hours waiting on you to embrace him, to talk to him, to engage him, because he wants to engage you in the very same way. This is why we are told that if you think of Allah, Allah thinks of you. If you walk towards him, he would run towards you. So when you pray, keep in mind that you are reaching out to your most beloved lover, Allah yuhib wa anta mahboob. He loves you and you are beloved. But you love him and he is beloved. Nothing in life, I am 57, nothing in life I learned is more powerful of energy like the energy of love. Therefore, when you go to prayer, you connect with Allah. Allah's glory and beauty and perfection 
and, and you know, and these amazing attributes. And actually, when you are in prayer, you do not want to leave it. I don't want anything in the world like being in the presence of the most beloved who loves me the most. In a diverse community such as the one we have here in GUQ, we uphold the responsibility as Muslims to represent the best version of Islam. We know that the DC campus has a diverse student body as well. Is there a way that you or members of the MSA in DC have been able to connect non-Muslim students and faculty with the Muslim community? And how would you suggest MSA and GUQ could contribute along such lines to benefit both the Muslim and non-Muslim community on campus? Well, thank you. Again, another good question. Before we unite with non-Muslims, we need to be ready to unite with Muslims. The truth is that in the Muslim community, anywhere, everywhere, you have people who are on the far right, you have people on the far left, and you have people in between everywhere. There are people in the center, and between the center and the right, and the center and the left. Keep in mind the ayah in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, وَلَوْ أَرَادَ رَبُّكَ if Allah had wanted, لَجَعَلَ النَّاسَ أُمَّةً وَاحِدًا He would have made all of you the same. Actually, another ayah tells us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala خَلَقَنَا مُخْتَلِفِينَ and we will always be مُخْتَلِفِينَ We will always be different. It's okay to be different. It's okay to interpret things differently. It's okay to disagree. However, Islam teaches us how to agree, to disagree without being disagreeable. How to agree to disagree without becoming enemies, without carrying arms on each other. As the Prophet said in his Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in his Khutbat al-Wada'a, the last farewell speech. So this is where we start. We need to keep in mind that we will never always be the same. Number one. Number two, there will be different interpretations that we may not agree or like. Allah judges people, not us. Number three, within that diversity, we need to believe that in diversity lies our unity and in diversity lies the beauty of our colors. No garden can look beautiful if it has only one color. So the beauty of any garden is the multiple colors that make it. The beauty of a painting is the multiple colors that you, that make it. Even if you look at the sky, when you, when you see the multiple clouds with the multiple shades of colors of white and gray and everything in between, and the blue, you have, oh my God, that's God, you want to look at it again and again. again. So is our nature. And because of that, our MSA and the way we do programs, we make sure that none of our programs exclude anyone and that they make everyone feel at home. We make sure we don't judge people for how they practice Islam or do not practice Islam or the level of their practice. Again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only judge. By no, in no way can anyone put himself or herself in the place of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to judge people. You never know who is and in what, how people live their faith. So you need to honor that. Uh, uh, now, in terms of non-Muslims, once you are able to unite with Muslims and live that diversity, that would be a good practice to live that unity and respect with other than Muslims. A few things. Number one, you need to treat others with, ref- with respect. Number two, you need to treat others with love. No way can you work with people you don't love, even if you disagree with their faith, with their religion, and of how they practice. 
you flow with love, show love, and let Allah allow that energy of love to transform people. It is not you who guide or transform people. It is Allah who does. Your job is to ensure that you create the environment, the energy, the feeling that allows people's souls to be changed. The other thing is, not everyone knows what Islam is and is not. As Imam Ali tells us, you fear that which you do not know. Many non-Muslims fear it. A religion they don't know. Sometimes because we do not practice Islam in the right way. And end up representing our faith in the worst of ways. And therefore I ask you, my brothers and my sisters, to ensure that you, I mean the Muslim sisters and brothers, that you practice Islam in a, a respectful way, a loving, compassionate, merciful, inclusive way, a way that honors human beings, all human beings with the hope that others will see the beauty of Islam in a way that they would want to experience it as well. Uh, SubhanAllah, your reply to the last two questions connect really well. Um, I think you emphasized on the necessity of love in our religion, and I also agree that it's really important because we must think of our three jawarah, our three senses, which is qawl fa'aluniya, qawl bilisan, which is saying with your tongue and then fa'il which is like do actions and niya um, what you believe in your heart and um, to be able to connect these three things and make sure that they are aligned with what Allah commands us um, we need to have love to our religion and also understanding and uh, I feel like it's also important like you mentioned is that we have to be able to um, love Allah and we can only do that by knowing him. And that goes to our religion. Like we have to, like if we want to love our religion and be able to represent it well, we have to know our religion fully. Um, and I feel like that could be done in multiple ways, um, especially like educating ourselves on who Allah is um, what he tells us and um, how he uh, how he encourages us to go on about our daily lives because our religion is not just about praying and reading the Quran and fasting it's a, it's a way of life it's a way of how we communicate with each other it's the way we study it's the way we work um, it's the way we engage with this community so thank you so much for joining us today and thank you all for your efforts and bringing the Muslim community together, whether in DC or in Qatar. And I want to thank my two co-hosts, Hidayah and Sabiha. Allah Thank you for tuning in to this episode of GUQ Speaks. We hope you've gained valuable insights and inspirations from our conversation today. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow us on our Instagram page at GQ underscore speaks and be sure to leave a review on Spotify to show your support.